Hello everyone. Do you like reading? Do you like walking? Do you like thinking about your life? Then we have got something for you. Our Common Ground Pilgrimages are going to be announcing our slate of fall and winter 2020 pilgrimages on March 2nd. So if you sign up for our newsletter at readingandwalkingwith.com, you will be the first to know when registration launches and only people on our newsletter will get 30 minutes early registration access and it's first come first serve. So signing up first might mean the difference between getting a spot or not. There's less than 20 spots on each pilgrimage and one of them might be involving me and a book that we all love. So you're talking about you leading a pilgrimage with he's just not that into you? A hundred percent, yeah. <laughs> oh my God, I'm there. So that's readingandwalkingwith.com. Sign up to the newsletter. Be the first to know about our pilgrimages this year. Chapter three, the advance guard. I've just been attacked by Dementors, and I may be expelled from Hogwarts. I want to know what's going on and when I'm going to get out of here. Harry copied these words onto three separate pieces of parchment the moment he reached the desk in his dark bedroom. He addressed the first to Sirius. I'm Vanessa Zoltan. And I'm Casper Terkyle. And this is Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. Vanessa, as you know, this summer I went back to St. Andrews in Scotland, which, and I've talked about this on the podcast before, I had my accident. I fell from the pier and I broke both my legs and double fractured my back. Um, And it reminded me of that whole experience. You know, when you're in a place where something has happened, it's this kind of visceral memory. It's like in your body. And I spent three or four months recovering at home with my parents and my sister, who at that point hadn't left home yet. And, you know, there's a six-year difference between us, and I'd gone to boarding school for some time. So, you know, I knew her as my sister, but, like, there wasn't much more than that there. And so while I was recovering in bed and then later in a wheelchair, she would stop by in the afternoons to check in on how I was doing. And because my invalid bed was in the living room, which is where the piano also is in our house, she would do her like piano practice for school. And so I just got to like listen to her doing her scales and like working on pieces. And suddenly she started to sing little songs and I would start joining in on them. And we would kind of harmonize to old classic standards like Where or When, which is the greatest of the American songbook. But the thing I loved most was that every morning when she walked to school, she would tape on the outside of the window as she walked past the room I was in, a like daily quiz or a quote or a funny picture. And so every morning there was something new for me to look at and think about or puzzle over. And For me, that was one of the most powerful expressions of compassion that I've received in my life because compassion is different from pitying someone. Compassion is really about joining them in their experience as much as you can, like at their level. And so the fact that Rosa would just like come and hang with me and like engage me with my brain, even when my body couldn't do very much, it just felt like she was really present with me all the time. And so as we're reading this chapter through this theme of compassion, that's what I'm trying to remember to bring to this chapter. How can we see people joining Harry in his state of distress rather than trying to fix it or trying to to make everything better? Even if that's also important, there's something different about compassion. I once went home from college because I had pneumonia 
And my younger brother was still living at home. And the night I got home, he decided that my being sick wasn't an excuse to cancel the huge party he was throwing. (laughs) And so he threw the huge party anyway. And when I complained to my parents, they were like, sorry, we didn't have you getting sick on the schedule. (laughs) And that was the way my family showed compassion. I just remember this moment of, like, going out because I wanted to reheat my tea in the microwave. And these two kids were making out in front of the microwave. And they looked at me like I was imposing on them. And I was like, this is my house. By my house, I mean my parents' house. But it's my house. She doesn't even go here. Yeah, you don't even go here. We wear pneumonia on Thursdays. (laughs) All right, Vanessa, it's time for the 30-second recap. And it's your turn to go first. Here we go. Three, two, one, go. So the Dursleys are like, we're going to lock you in your room. And Harry's like, that's fine. I never pee anyway. And then he hears a noise downstairs. And it turns out that there are like all of these wizards there. And they are going to come to help Harry escape. And we meet Tonks for the first time. And Lupin and Tonks, I think, sort of have a flirtation from the beginning. And Harry has this awkward moment where he's like, Professor Moody. And Moody is like, I don't know if I qualify as a professor. And so then they all go on this really long broom ride. And they take Harry's stuff. And then they land right near Grimald Place. And he's going to find out what that is very nice thank you i like that there's characterization there's foreshadowing Mm -hmm. there's real complexity you're an english literature graduate (laughs) right this is a skill that i've honed you paid thousands of dollars (laughs) for that 30 seconds (laughs) i'm still paying off the debt to be able to do these 30 second recaps aren't we all are you ready to show everybody how What did you study in college? Um, History and sociology. Are you ready to show everybody how a historian and sociologist does this? (laughs) Yes, indeed. Okay, wonderful. (laughs) Your A-levels start in three, two, one. Nearly 20 years ago, (laughs) a little boy called Harry Potter, who didn't think of himself as a very little boy anymore, uh, escaped through the windy, cold, and cloudy night um, after Tonks, of course, a woman, had to help him pack his bags because boys don't know how to pack bags. Oh, Uh, and he was very moody. Uh, Oh, see what I did there. And he puts um, Moody's eye in a glass of water and then it's all nice and clean. And Moody's like very insistent about lots of changes. And then they arrive and Harry's like, but this is just a city. What's going on? Going on. Remember this address, 12 Grimald Place, Amanda. You are lovely. You are lovely. I imagine that washing Moody's eye is similar to like washing dentures. There's some sort of like Alka Seltzer y thing yeah. that you clean them in. Yeah, there's like bubbles. Yeah. Maybe the water becomes kind of a gray blue. Just that, right? like that eye liquid. So I'm going to start right at the beginning of this chapter, which is that Hedwig comes back. And still, quote, has a beak full of frog. Like, she is still eating. And Harry is like, I have a task for you. You have to go. I have all these letters. And you have to go and bother Ron, Hermione, and Sirius until they give you a response. And Hedwig is, like, pretty annoyed with him. And Harry's like, that was probably unfair of me, but I'll just make it up to her later when she comes back with a response. And this is, like, not a moment of tremendous compassion on Harry's part. He's being treated terribly, and he's just pushing that forward onto Hedwig. And it made me think of the fact that it's harder to be compassionate when no one is being compassionate to you. Yeah, so much has to do with your capacity for compassion, like how much emotional energy you have and how much calm you have, right? Harry is in real distress here. 
And he just doesn't seem able to think of anyone else's perspectives or feelings. Like his worldview right now is just right into his own space. Like he's not even thinking about Hedwig, who's just come back from hunting. That makes a lot of sense to me because times when I feel most compassionate are often like, after I've done my morning meditation or, you know, maybe I've had like an easier day. So I'm much more willing to go and help out a situation which looks like it might need a pair of hands. I I don't think it's how we should be. No. And it is something that I've really tried to do lately, like in the last year. If something bad happens to me, I try to immediately be nice within like 30 seconds. Mm. So it's like if somebody like doesn't hold the door open for me, I'm like, well, I am going to hold the door open for the next six people. Ah. And I think it like doesn't come from a good place, but I think it's been a really beneficial practice. It comes from like wanting to change the story. I'm like, well, I don't want to be mad. I want to be somebody who feels good. So I'm going to do something nice because it makes me feel good. It's a positive feedback loop. But even though I think it comes from sort of a gross place within me, I still think it's beneficial. I I find it really hard to do that. Like, I feel like I'm more of a person who needs to take a breath or like, you know what it is often is I physically have to get out of the space that I'm in, which is interesting here because Harry is so stuck in the Dursleys. I mean, he's literally locked in. One thing that really struck me was like he doesn't have access to a bathroom But there is something about he's stuck in this place and so he's stewing. And I think I often, you know, get very contemptful and resentful. And we see that with Harry. Like, he's going to be really nasty to Ron and Hermione, especially in the next chapter. So I feel like he's in this cauldron of unhappiness and anger right now so that he just isn't able to be compassionate. And he physically needs to get out for that to shift, which, which is, I think, how I am too. Well, Casper, a class that you and I had together was Journey and Quest with Stephanie Paulsell. And something she talks a lot about is in Dante's Inferno, one of the like key ways that people are tortured in hell is that they are trapped, that they cannot move. And that that is a kind of torture to not be able to journey anymore, to not be able to mm-hmm. imagine that there is something next, something better. Being able to journey is freedom, is hope, mm-hmm. right? And so, yeah, of course, at 15 with PTSD being locked in a room, he's going to start taking things out on the only thing that he can. It's not like do better, but it's, you know, wishing for him that he had some of those spiritual tools or emotional tools at his disposal to make this really difficult situation better for himself. Yeah, and I think if, you know, we've talked about St. Ignatius and and the kind of Ignatian spiritual practice that we do, that came from him being bedbound for a very, very long time. And so that imagining yourself into a story came from someone who was physically very, very limited in what they could do, but still had that kind of like soul journey that they created for themselves. And it's definitely not easy and certainly not when you're 15 and, you know, Voldemort has risen again. But luckily that is not exactly the case in my life. Let's look at where we do see compassion embodied in this chapter because to me it it really comes from some of the adults who come in. We meet a number of new characters. This is a very important chapter. Um, So the Order of the Phoenix has some representatives. Apparently this shift of like rescuing Harry was oversubscribed. (laughs) I was like, come on, people. Like, he's 15 at this point. You haven't seen him yet? Like, deal with it. Yeah. 
I feel that way. It's like when so many people volunteer to like help Brad Pitt wipe his brow. I was going to say, does Jake Gyllenhaal need like some <laughs> baby oil? Because I am ready. I'll fly anywhere. <laughs> anyway, yes. One too many adults have volunteered. So we meet Tonks. We see Lupin again. We see Moody again. But we also meet Kingsley Shacklebolt and Hestia Jones Emmeline Vance, a character I really think we hear a lot from over the next few pages. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and I think once we meet these people, we see some really beautiful moments of compassion. The thing that really struck me is, you know, they're going to rescue Harry, so he has to go and pack. And so Tonks accompanies him and helps him pack. And it feels really simple, but the way she does it, like her tone is so warm and she's enthusiastic about like his broom and she's bringing herself into his world in a way that makes him comfortable. Like she says the house is like weirdly clean and all of these muggles are very strange with their cleanliness and walks into his like pigsty of room that has not been touched in four days and says, oh, that's better. So that's so interesting. So yes, I think that she shows a lot of compassion in this scene. But there were a few things that I noticed about it. One, I think that she's doing this as an horror just because they want someone next to Harry at all times, right? Mm. I think that her saying, let me help you pack, is sort of a BS thing. Um, That's next level. And I do think that she does it artfully, regardless of why she goes up, right? Like, she starts looking in the mirror. She's not, like, staring at him. But I just think, like, packing is a very intimate thing. Like, underwear is out. <laughs> like, I wouldn't be like, hi, nice to meet you. Let me help you pack. That just seems invasive. Let me look at everything that's in your bedroom. <laughs> yeah. It just struck me as very strange. But then I do think, you know, he asks Tonks about the fact that she's a metamorphagus. That's how we're going to say that is said. And she has, I think, this moment of great compassion when she says, I bet you wish that you could get rid of that scar. And he does not experience that as compassion because then she looks at the scar and he is incredibly annoyed by that. He's like, I wish that people wouldn't stare at my scar. And so I feel like Harry is at a place where I wonder if he's even capable of receiving compassion. So that's really interesting because I read it differently. Let's look at the text. She says, bet you wouldn't mind hiding that scar sometimes, eh? Her eyes found the lightning-shaped scar on Harry's forehead. No, I wouldn't mind, Harry mumbled, turning away. He did not like people staring at his scar. Now you've introduced that reading of it, it totally makes sense. But my initial response was like, finally someone understands. Because he's literally yeah. just had like five people downstairs look at his scar. So it's kind of very fresh. I just think that she's like trying to be hip and be like... I know, that must be really hard for you. And he's like, yeah, it is. Stop looking at it. Because <laughs> I was thinking like, yes, this is a mumble of understanding. Like, yeah, I wouldn't mind kind of turning away. Like, yeah, that's so interesting. I mean, I hope that he receives it as compassion. It is certainly her trying to open up an extended hand and say like, having that scar must be a burden. You know what's really interesting, Vanessa? This is making me think there's two halves to compassion. One is someone showing it and having the capacity to show it. But there's also something about the capacity to receive compassion. And maybe right now, like, Harry can't even bear someone joining him in his pain. And I don't know. Like, should we should we force compassion on? Like, this is a child, right? Like, I don't want Harry to remain on his own. I think it's dangerous if he stays in a stewing pot so someone's going to have to break into that 
in some way, right, and, and disturb the boundary that Harry is putting up. Like, how do we think about giving compassion? I think that Tonks is on the right path, and I think she's giving it in a really thoughtful way. She's, like, saying something that she's guessing is really true. But I do think that there have been moments in my life where someone has tried to be compassionate with me, and I'm like, you're doing this wrong. And I think that sometimes they are actually doing it wrong, (laughs) and other times it's just like, I don't want your compassion right now for a variety of reasons, right? Compassion can often be received as pity. Mm. And you're like, I don't need your pity right now. I need your help. Yeah, that makes total sense. And I actually think Tonks uses two different strategies in this scene. One that we've talked about of kind of like saying, hey, that must be hard. But she also models something by metamorphosizing in front of Harry, She walks in with this violet-colored hair. It's kind of spiky. And then she's looking at herself in the mirror and saying, oh, I'm not really sure this is my color. Makes me look a bit peaky, which is such an English word. And then changes it. And so it becomes this beautiful kind of pink color. And on the one hand, it's stimulating Harry's magical interest. Like, wow, I didn't know people could do this. Like, how do I become like you? But on the other hand, she's also showing like, you know, maybe there's things that I as an adult, as an aura don't like about myself in this moment and it doesn't have to limit who I am in the next moment. In the same way that Harry, you know, probably feels pretty bad about himself too. And and there's some hint of transformation is possible that she's modeling without ever making it a point, which I think is really smart. The other thing that I think is brilliant about that moment is that she went up to his room and like isn't looking at him, right? It's a way to give him a little bit of privacy, which I feel like is often something you do in like play therapy or child psychology, right? You like, you're like, draw me a picture. I'm going to do this other thing. Oh, are you saying really meaningful things? (laughs) Right? Like, I think Tonk's creating a space and is building a friendship with him in this very informal way. You know, that's probably a class in aura school that we never get to hear about. But like so much of spying or good police work is about relationship building understanding human interactions, making yourself a trusted person that people will talk to. But so I'm wondering what you make of this talk strategy. So Moody is an alarmist. So like Moody is like, well, if we don't all die first, right? Like about everything. And Tonks's way of handling that is by mocking him. And at first I was like, this is really disrespectful. Moody might be paranoid, but just because they're paranoid doesn't mean they're not after you. He just got locked in a trunk for a year. He's missing, like, huge parts of his body. This is, like, a true veteran, and he's not crazy. Like, he's saying things that sound dramatic, but they are based in reality. And she's constantly undercutting him. But I do think that this is actually teasing from a place of compassion. It's one, trying to soften the blow of the harshness of those statements for people like Harry. It's like, let's not be too scared. And I also think that it's a way of relating to Moody across generation, across gender, and across experience lines that's saying, like, even though I don't have access to all the things that you have access to. I can still, like, rib you a little. And it's never done without respect because she does say, you know, in this chapter, she's explaining that she's an aura. She's still relatively new and that she struggled with this particular subject. She looks up to Moody even though she's joking with him. 
And I think that, you know, you've talked about this in terms of your work with climate change, but that we need both, right? We need Moody to be completely scared with all of his experience. And then we need Tonks to be like, if we keep going around in circles, our hands are going to freeze and we'll literally never get to land. And it's actually the two of them compassionately relating to one another together that makes them a strong horror team. So true. Vanessa, where else do you see compassion showing up in this chapter? Something I noticed in this chapter is that there's a lot of conversation about what to call people. Huh. So we get introduced to Tonks, and Tonks is, you know, Lupin says this is Nymphadora. And she's like, Lupin, do not call me that. I like to be called Tonks. And then Harry, completely understandably, calls Professor Moody Professor Moody. And Moody gets put off by that because he's like, I never actually taught. I wasn't a professor. That actually brings a real trauma up for him. And so I was just thinking that it's shown again and again in this chapter that a way to be compassionate to someone is to call them what they like to be called. I think that's such a great point, Vanessa. And I mean, for Tonks especially, it's interesting. The Nymphadora as a name, to me, kind of reminds me of some of the other members of her family, kind of the Bellatrixes and the Narcissus, like those longer names are kind of more like witchy names. And Tonks is this very muggle-born last name, which she's embracing with pride. So there's so much in a name that we choose that is important to us. And I absolutely love how, you know, A, she is very clear about what she wants and that then everyone respects that. But what's so interesting is that we've heard that, like, Moody is not somebody who will, you know, mince words when he's like, don't call me that. But then later in the chapter, Tonks calls Moody Mad-Eye. And Moody doesn't seem to mind that, even though he's been introduced as Alistair Moody. But I think that possibly speaks in part to the fact that those names are relational. What you're saying about, especially about Tonks and Mad-Eye and their relationship, is making me wonder if there's actually hidden compassion in this chapter. The thing that Mad-Eye says about Harry holding his wand and putting it in his pocket, he says like, oh, your buttocks might fall off. You know, like... Better wizards than you have blown off their buttocks. Exactly. Like, that is legit hilarious. (laughs) I'm now wondering, like, is that Mad-Eye's humor? Maybe Mad-Eye is, like, full of compassion in in creating some humor amidst his fear of the world. That's great, because at the end of the chapter, Tongs, like, does a callback joke to it. Yeah. And is like, oh, and you're, make sure that your one's not in your pocket. Like, they've been making that joke since 9 a.m. when they left home. <laughs> and it's just traveled with them all day. You and I never do that. We never beat a joke into the ground. <laughs> and then are like, it'll plant a beautiful garden. Exactly. A buttock garden. (laughs) Casper, is there any last place that you saw compassion in this chapter? Well, I I do want to point to one other thing, which is with Moody again. You know, he asks Harry to get a glass of water to put his eyeball in. And I always ask that whenever I go to someone's house, too. (laughs) But what I like about this as well is that sometimes the way to show compassion is to not make distinctions between you and someone else kind of normalize what's going on and not make the person who is struggling or suffering with something into this like exotic other that we must touch with just cotton wool. So I like that in this moment where Harry is confused and angry and and frustrated, he's giving Harry a very easy task that he can succeed in. Because we know that when we do things where we feel successful, like it's important to our sense of self and and and, and self-efficacy. So I'm wondering if he's if he really needs a glass of water and maybe he does. 
but he can see through everything. So he knows darn well where the glasses are and he can see where the tap is. So I feel like he's giving this task to Harry on purpose. Yeah. And I mean, another possible reason would be to be like, you've been told not to use this kitchen. You can use whatever darn kitchen you want. There's a new order in town now. The Dursleys can't hurt you anymore. This is now our house. There's a new order in town. <laughs> There's a new order in town and other intentional puns that Vanessa is proud of. <laughs> so, Casper, we are going to dive back into the practice of marginalia which I was nervous about how we did, but we got an email from Stephanie Paulsell saying we're doing great. So we're doing great. <laughs> okay, so I am going to just put my finger in one of your margin notes, and you underlined the partial sentence, he was flying again, flying away from Privet Drive. And what you wrote was, even the plan to leave is on his favorite travel method. So I feel like what you're saying is like, this is basically Harry's dream come true. <laughs> is that what you're saying? The thing that it made me think of was like, Harry has felt so out of the loop and so, frankly, useless that I'm not sure if this plan is just about how well it fits with, you know, keeping Harry safe and how doable it is. But I'm also wondering if they took into account, like, we know Harry's a really good flyer. We know he's got a great broom. That flying is where Harry feels at his best often it felt, you know we 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 learned the moment he gets on the broom it's like second sight like he's always had it and so it's just another way of affirming harry in some way and maybe that's why they let the fact that all the people who wanted to rub baby oil on Jake Gyllenhaal come right they were like there's too many people we don't need that many of you uh, uh, but it'll make harry feel like he's really loved by the wizarding world if all of you come sure I don't know. I feel like I'm suddenly seeing like two or three layers to Moody's planning here because he's very clear about going into the details of the plan. So Harry understands what's going on. He wants to be very direct. And so he's really thought this through. And I think I think we're seeing just another level of his generosity in, in even the way that they're leaving. So the other thing that's interesting about this, though, is that there is a moment where Harry is like, flu powder isn't that comfortable either, but at least it's warm, right? <laughs> And so I think that that is evidence of the fact that Harry's in such a bad place right now that even his favorite thing Mm -hmm. has become a negative thing. He's like, oh, my hands are frozen to this broomstick and like I'm so tired from holding on. And it's just like nothing will bring him joy in this moment, which is in and of itself like a cry for help. But and then like part of me doesn't agree with that because too much of anything like stops being good. I have eaten too much ice cream only once. (laughs) Other than that, I've eaten large amounts of ice cream and it's never been enough. But like the sugar loses its taste, right? No, that's true. And, you know, he imagines himself into the comfort of a car. And it does echo back to the different books we've read already where there's a different way in which he leaves, right? There's the train in book one and then the car in book two and then later the flu network and apparating. And so, yeah, that's interesting that maybe all good things feel kind of tarnished when you're in a really difficult place. That That's definitely true. Something that I've felt in my life where, like, I've seen a movie that I'm sure I would have loved, but I was in a bad place, and so I hated it. It makes me think of the phrase, you know, the world is seen in black and white. Like, you're seeing everything kind of in a grayscale, loses its color. And it does strike me how much 
Nightfall is present in this chapter. Um, you know, he's writing the letter at the very beginning of the chapter in the dark in his bedroom. He hasn't turned on the light. They're obviously leaving in the middle of the night. You know, he sees some lights down at the earth, especially when they're coming in closer to Grimmauld Place. It's a it's a very urban area. Um, but there's there's something about like being in grayscale, even in the colors of this chapter, except for these kind of piercing moments of light of Tonks's hair and just how central her her colorfulness is in Harry's world. So Vanessa, let me turn to your text. Um, you've underlined various bits, but the thing that I want to talk about is, is this line, which Moody says, it keeps sticking ever since that scum wore it. And in the margins, you wrote so many victims. And the way I'm reading your notes, to me, seems to suggest something that like, you know, we know of Voldemort's headline impact, especially Harry's parents being killed. But the kind of reverberations of this war that we're now entering again is that everyday items around the house, on our bodies, like the fact that he's missing a bit in his nose, but now also his eye is in some way related to Voldemort. Like the fact that his eye is not working connects to this kind of moment, like this crime of Voldemort's power grabbing. I'm curious, is that what you were thinking about or other layers that that you want to add to this line? Yeah, I just think that a crime like killing Cedric and like going after Harry has its obvious victims and then it has these more hidden victims like the fact that Moody's eye is never going to fit the same. You know, there was a video going around a couple of days ago about a mother and child who've been reunited since they were separated at the border. And the child, like, won't make eye contact with his mom and sort of runs away from his mom. And they've been separated for months. And, like, obviously it's wonderful that they are now being reunited. But this is a small child who hopefully won't remember that he was separated from his mother. But, like, we don't even know the ways that this is going to impact the rest of his life and the rest of her life. And then potentially, like, his children's lives, right? These types of traumas last in these really invisible ways. And I think that Moody saying this one comment shows us that, like, any act of violence is just disruptive in ways that we can never understand. It just breaks my heart. I feel like this is a moment— where we get to see it very clearly that, oh, I never thought about the fact that, like, Moody's eye will now bother him for the rest of his life. I mean, it's something, you know, I joke a lot about the fact that I have an evil aunt. And she is. Like, she's a a mean, vindictive person who's willing to do a lot in order to hurt other people. And then I have waves of compassion where I remember all of the trauma that she has experienced in her life. And It contextualizes her. And as I've talked about on the podcast before, it does not mean that I want her back in my life because she is a toxic person for me. But it certainly in an abstract way gives me compassion for the way that she behaves. Right. And yeah, like she I mean, she was raised by Holocaust survivors who were projecting all sorts of their trauma onto her and. There's a study that shows that rape can live sort of in a woman's system in terms of like the way that it literally reshapes their hormones for five generations. So we live these traumas in all sorts of ways. And this was just a way that the text, I think, revealed to me that even on this micro level, this larger violence has impacted the wizarding world. Yeah, that's so powerful. I'm also thinking about 
how this helps us understand compassion better as well, because you just made that distinction between an abstract compassion and an understanding and a contextual awareness, and then a sort of an action that you might take. And we can have compassion, but it doesn't always mean that we have to, you know, let someone back into our lives, for example, if it has been a really toxic relationship. So that's really helpful to make to make that distinction. Yeah. Compassion changes our actions, but I don't think it means friendship. I don't even think it means forgiveness, mm. right? It just means understanding. And I think that that should change the way that we behave. I don't think that that means that my aunt and I should talk ever again for the rest of my life, ever. It's time for a voicemail, and this week we're hearing from Nikki Spencer. Hi, Vanessa, Casper, and Ariana. I've been a big fan of the podcast for a long time, and I've been looking forward to book five. When this book first came out, I was 15, and I remember it was the only book in the series I was disappointed with. It seemed like Harry had become screamy, angry Harry, as you described it recently, and I know a lot of us felt the same way. A few years ago, though, now as an adult... Uh, A friend and I were injured during an attack, one where other people actually died. And afterwards, as you can imagine, I developed PTSD. I had a lot of trouble staying asleep at night because of nightmares, and so my partner started reading me Harry Potter before bed. He knew the books have always been a source of comfort. We got to Order the Phoenix, and it clicked. I know you shouldn't diagnose someone you haven't met, let alone someone who's fictional, but I strongly identified with what Harry was going through. The anger and frustration, especially when the people and the systems that are supposed to be helping you make you feel helpless or treat you like a child. The knowing looks of exasperated loved ones who are trying to help in misguided but well-meaning ways. I totally get it. I know y'all don't often bless Harry on the podcast, but I'll be blessing him at home. I'll also be blessing the Hermiones and Rons, the friends and loved ones who stay up late reading you your favorite books so that you can heal. And I'll be sending particular blessings to the Lunas, the folks who can also see the Thestrals, and say, don't worry, you're just as sane as I am. There's a movement these days around trauma-informed care. It's the idea that instead of asking, what's wrong with you, we ask, what have you been through? And we talk about healing in a way that's respectful, transparent, and puts someone's wishes at the center. I know you'll do this anyway, but I hope we can read Order of the Phoenix in a trauma-informed way and avoid blame and judgment, especially when it's tempting to just roll your eyes. So thank you for what you do, and I look forward to this fifth season. Nikki, I'm so glad that you sent that to us, and I'm so sorry that happened to you. The way you described you and your partner, like him reading to you and, and you experiencing your own experience and the book all over again in this new way is so powerful. And I'm so grateful for your invitation, your reminder to us as we encounter kind of all caps lock Harry to think about this much bigger context that he's living in and that so many people are living in um, right now. So thank you for that. And I think it speaks to your open-mindedness that even when you were in a place of being wounded, what it led you to was to be more compassionate to Harry. And so I think that that is such great modeling for us as to how even from a place of our woundedness, we can become more open-minded, more compassionate people. Mm. Thanks, Nikki. So, Casper, now we get to bless someone from the chapter. Who would you like to bless? I want to bless Harry. He's not who I thought I would bless coming into the studio today. But, like, hearing Nikki's voicemail and looking at the text together in such depth today has really made me just put myself in his place as much as I could. 
and just that feeling of, of being alone. And even these people who have arrived, apart from Lupin, who he doesn't interact with that much, most of these people are strangers. So even this place of safety and this experience of rescue that he should be feeling as a positive thing ends up being like rain-soaked and cold and unfamiliar, and he doesn't even know where he's going. So it's not like he's going to feel safe and happy straight away. So I, I I just really feel for Harry and anyone who's out of control of their own experience and things are changing quickly, but not necessarily for the better as far as you know. How about you, Vanessa? I am going to bless Tonks. She just comes like right into this chapter and into our lives and our hearts. And she is just navigating so many different dynamics. She's like a new or, which is a big job for a young woman. And she's like, I'm going to go straight into like being bold with Harry and trying to be compassionate in this way. She's in love with Lupin. So she's like off flirting with Lupin while simultaneously trying to take care of this like dodgy old man with Moody. And she's just managing all of this as like gracefully and well as anybody possibly can. This is a high-stress environment for a woman in a man's field, and she is just, like, knocking it out of the park. And she's, like, obviously wondering what she should be wearing to work and, like, what makes her look cool and, like, herself professional and, like, what she should be called at work. And, right, like, she's really grappling with all these questions that I think young women who are new in their field grapple with. And so I just want to honor Tonks for this place that she's in and for all women. I recently committed to not wearing heels anymore. These are hard compromises. And so I want to bless Tonks for leading the way. You've been listening to Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, or leave us a review on iTunes and send us a voicemail to harrypottersacredtext at gmail.com. Next week, we will be reading Chapter 4, Number 12, Grimwald Place, through the theme of anger. This episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text was produced by the great Ariana Nettleman, the good Casper Terkyle, and the fine Vanessa Zoltan. We love you. <laughs> I mean, the fine Vanessa Zoltan. That's what I meant. Ariana's going to leave all of that in. Our music is by Ivan Paisau and Nick Bull. And we are a proud part of the Panoply Network. You can find ours and other great shows on panoply.fm. Go to our website, harrypottersacredtext.com, to find out about our amazing Florida trip that's coming up in February and all of our live shows that are this fall and winter. Thanks to Nikki Spencer for this week's voicemail, Julia Augie, Amanda Madigan, and the good, great, and fine Stephanie Purcell. True. We, on September... On September. <laughs> That's February. <laughs> September. All months should be some version of September. September. <laughs> yeah, I'm sticking Farch. to it. <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> they shouldn't all start with F. Uh.